It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the Deputy Editor-in-Chief Critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our Editor-at-Large out in Los Angeles. And Ann, uh, while we have just a couple weeks left to go before the Oscars, there's been a bunch of stuff going on in award season, from the DGA Awards to some events in Santa Barbara and the Oscar nominees lunch where you got to hang out with the most attractive people in town. So tell us a little bit about how that kind of trifecta of events impacted uh, the latest uh, kind of march to the finish line in the last week or so? Well, the DGA Awards on Saturday were pretty much as expected. Um, in other words, Jordan Peele got a little bit of momentum out of winning the first-time director. Like, who is going to take that away from him? And then, uh, and, and, but what's great about that event is that everybody gets up and has a, a, a moment to have their bask in the glory before they finally decide who the winner is. And of course, it was Guillermo del Toro. And this is what we expected. And it just, you know, pushes the shape of water even further forward in, in terms of being a favorite uh, to win a number of races um, when we get to uh, the Oscar finish line. And... I don't. I don't think um, anything's going to catch up with it. But um, that was that was uh, Saturday, and then on Monday was the um, Academy. And over the weekend in Santa Barbara, I I, w- I did my writers panel, which was really fun, and um, I got a kick out of uh, learning more about you know how Vanessa Taylor helped Guillermo write the Shape of Water screenplay, or how. Uh, Kumal Nanjiani and Emily V. Gordon, you know, worked it together on The Big Sick, or, uh, or how uh, <laughs> the disaster artist uh, came to be that screenplay. Uh, I, for example, Tommy Wiseau gave them notes. <laughs> of course he did. And, and negotiated his own deal, forgetting to insist that the scene that he wanted to shoot with uh, Franco what he did he forgot to insist that it be included in the movie and the deal <laughs> right well yeah. i mean he's he's after the credits and and what they i had heard about it. that they did he use wanted, it he wanted to do some kind of they wanted to get him to, to cameo for like two seconds as, as himself but that the deal he made it sort of required him to to write his own character so if you stick around in disaster until after the credits suddenly you know Franco's talking to this weird guy, and if you don't recognize it, it's Tommy Wiseau. It's the most random thing ever, but it's kind of, it's kind of funny to hear these backstories about how, how people deal with those sorts of things. What is What was your read on that in terms of, I mean, has anything changed in terms of the conversation about the best screenplays, especially with... Well, uh, I enjoyed listening to Virgil Williams, too, talk about the eight-year journey uh, and, and the passion that he felt for why Mudbound was such an important story to be told. And Dee Reese came into it relatively late, but she did enough to warrant uh, sharing the credit with him. Um, 
he was funny. He had started as an actor at eight years old in Chicago as an orphan in the Blues Brothers movie, <laughs> which I did. Yeah, you know, that was a great random factoid. Um, the uh, winners of the screenplay are most likely to be uh, James Ivory for Call Me By Your Name on the adapted side. And um, uh, we didn't have Greta Gerwig or Jordan Peele because they were go had to go to the DGAs, uh, the writer-directors. Another, another example of that cluttered time of the year yeah. where people make those tough choices. But so they, they turned up later in Santa Barbara to do the director's panel, which while it didn't yield much in the way of actual information, it was fun watching the directors sort of give each other pats on the back for what they liked about each other's work. Um, and all five of them were there. And it was uh, my favorite uh, item was came from Christopher Nolan, uh, who talked about how his he took his kids to see Phantom Thread. And now whenever he gets particularly dictatorial, they start calling him Woodcock. <laughs> Yeah, he just like won that movie and Oscar right there. That's amazing. He was, you know what it was? It was like he can be a little um, uh, British, if you like, Christopher Nolan. He's, it's like he's got a broom up his ass. A little stern, but he's actually. But he's just, actually human, and he was human. Yeah. That humanized him. In, no, in a way. But we I know how charming Del Toro is, right? It's, it's one of the things I've enjoyed is it's. Every year when, when the field narrows at this point in time, you see everybody starts singing each other's praises. They have to spend a lot of time together, so they may as well like each other, for, at least pretend. But in this particular case, what's kind of neat is that you have a lot of really significant filmmakers and really good movies of, of very different styles and approaches. And so it's kind of cool to hear, you know, uh, Greta Gerwig talk about Shape of Water or Nolan talking about PTA. It's like you're, you're getting a really fascinating cross-section yeah, of how, I agree. you know, Good people like good movies in a way that you don't always do, and a lot of times you could tell when they're they're kind of BSing. There doesn't seem to be quite as much BS among this crop of nominees. Well, you know, it's it obvious that Jordan and Greta, each having moved from being a performer to writing and directing their first feature, were likely to bond together. I think they did that early photo shoot for Vanity Fair too together. Yeah, yeah, that was know. quite stellar. Yeah. And then, and then you have someone like Nolan who really is friends with PTA. You know, they're bu they're buds. Um, yeah, and, yeah. And but, he, but it's interesting also because like you assume everybody wants to win, and and you don't know how, yeah, how much these conversations are going on behind the scenes or whatever. But it's but it's kind of interesting this idea of, of maintaining civility while also you know hoping that you beat this person in this the, the, for, in the race for the biggest award in the film industry. At the same time that you are uh, trying to be as charming and winning as possible. You could just see Nolan doing his level best <laughs> to, be, like to be human and sweet. Forcing and, a smile. <laughs> and pleasant. Um, and, and, you know, and I got to, actually, I got to interview him this week. I have a story that's going to come up and uh, it was, it's about uh, all the rules that were broken on Dunkirk. And I really got wonky with him, which was, you know what? That's what he is. He's a wonk. That's exactly who Christopher Nolan is. And it's fine. He's, a, he's one of the great directors of all time. It's so, okay. I mean, what's what's kind of fascinating too is that you have so many different kinds of personalities this year, not just in terms of quality, but in terms of sensibilities in, in almost like every single category and across 
multiple generations. And so if this is, you know, a reality series, then you went to one of the big kind of season finale events by going to this nominees lunch where you see these photos. I mean, going to the Oscars, you see everybody, but it's kind of mixed in with a much bigger crowd and it's, and it's very public. This is a lunch that brings in all these nominees for this big class photo. So I'm sort of curious about the vibe in that room and how, you know who felt really comfortable and who could you could see was sort of weirdly out of place given the the dynamic in play. Everybody belonged there. Um, I mean, you, it's what's great about it. If you look at the the photo, you see you know the people who are you know who directed an animated short, you know, or do, do who did sound or who. What I always love about it is the sense that you're with some of the best practitioners of the craft in the whole world, and it's very international. You know, it's Alexandre Desplat, and it's it's uh, Jr. holding up a a cutout of of Agnes Varda, uh, and Steven Spielberg, and yeah, uh, who's had seventeen nominations over his career, and Meryl Streep, who's had twenty one, and she was hanging with Greta Gerwig, and they were both wearing white, along with Mary J. Blige, and so they stood out, you know, which was always and and Margot Robbie was wearing was wearing white, um, you know, you and you know. Guillermo wanted to have a selfie taken with Spielberg and Greta, and he Spielberg wanted to sit with Greta because he wanted to know more about her, you know. <laughs> and and you just have all these little things going on. I was sitting at a table with Sir Ronan, who I had just done the tribute for in Santa Barbara, so I found that sort of funny, the luck of the draw. Um, and then you had uh, I was also with the producers of. Phantom Thread, and it was sort of interesting, and the guy from Focus Features who, who runs that division, Peter Kajowski, and it was just fun to know that they knew all along, because remember when Phantom Thread got six nominations on Oscar Morning, that was a shock. People expected maybe three, but they didn't expect For Best Picture, Best Director, they didn't I mean, expect was, as many. It was a late Leslie Manville. Right. So the point, right. So they campaigned recognizing that they weren't going to get all the precursors that would have given clues to how strong it was and that they had to just go for the finish line. And that's what they did. And it worked. So that was an interesting uh, piece of, of intel uh, from from him. Um, but it, listen, as far as the applause when they're all going up, each single person going up to the riser for the photo, there's applause in the room. And I did notice that if you were African-American, you got more applause. So Jordan Peele or Dee Reese or, you know, they leaned in and gave enthusiastic applause. And well, you know, if, the other possibility is that these are just very popular people who have a lot of supporters anyway. Well, I mean, no, I, I would say because then when Ra Rachel Morrison was called the woman cinematographer, the very first in the history of, of the Academy, nominated for Mudbound, the applause was enormous. That was the biggest applause of the entire night, even well, bigger sure. than sure. Kobe yeah. Bryant. <laughs> Kobe yeah. Bryant, it's not his crowd anyway. Yeah, so, so. It, was, it, was, it, was, it was, you know, that kind of, you know, the celebrities always get more applause than anyone else that just goes without saying but you could see that someone like um 
someone like even someone like uh, Jason Blum got extra applause. Then you know it, it was it was interesting. He's done some cool stuff. I mean, the name has some resonance for people who are paying attention to you know disruptors, innovators, making small movies that actually get seen. And but attention. he's the producer of Get Out, so right, that's right. why and he was getting the applause. Right. So it's sort of, but it's like the diversity thing plus, like, hey, you pulled off this. Get Out is cool because actually, like Shape of Water, it's not only is it. You know, does it have the diversity thing in check? But it's also a movie that, you know, it's just so unlike what we usually see supported at this time of year. So, you know, there's there are a lot of reasons to be rooting for that kind of I thing. I think there was a lot of support in the room for Get Out, I have to say. So I'm I'm going to go uh, uh, take a stab and, changing. and think that maybe the original. No, it's more I think it, I really do think it's going to win original screenplay is what I think. That would be nice. That would be nice. Man, who knows? There could be more support out there than people are even choosing to acknowledge right now. And there's also, it also has male appeal. It also has, you know, writing people like it. And then you have the idea that, that maybe Leslie Manville might beat out Alice and Janney just so that Lady Bird could win something. Right. And then Itania loses its one shot. But right. hey. It got this far, which is pretty impressive anyway. So all these good vibes in the room, there is something that I'm sort of curious about from the other end of the spectrum and doesn't get talked about a ton, which is, if not negative campaigning, the possibility of negative stories arising that can derail a campaign. Now, we know on some level this happened with James Franco and Disaster Artist. We hadn't been talking about him as a possible nominee, and he wasn't nominated. There was a possibility he could get nominated anyway, but it didn't happen. In any case, that definitely played a role. There's other stuff that comes and goes. There were some silly stories with Guillermo del Toro and Shape of Water and whether or not he, he took some ideas from other films. That they, they strike me as utter nonsense for a lot of different reasons, but it did get me thinking about this because there are other examples, like for, like with Gary Oldman and his history with his ex-wife that's kind of gnarly. And the question is, what does it take for one of these stories to actually take hold and really you know, push back some of these momentum and, and even cause them to lose or take them out of the, the race altogether? Because it, it seems like it's a tough thing to quantify. Well, with Gary Oldman, uh, what I keep hearing is basically his wife had some issues. He ended up with sole custody of the kids, uh, which is a sign that the courts thought he should be the one to raise those children. And it, at the tribute in Santa Barbara, it was the first time that I quite realized how much raising his children had become, in L.A., had become... Uh, um, part of the reason why Gary Oldman took certain roles and not others. He sort of said, if I'm going to work, I'm going to do it for money and I'm going to try to stay here in L.A. And I always wondered, in a way, why, why he didn't, why, why he made some of the choices that, that he did. He still has a great resume and some great movies, but they weren't always the, the most um, uh, daring uh, choices. You know, he did a lot of what you would call formula commercial movies. Um, and it's because he was raising his kids. And uh, and that was the most important thing to him. And I was moved by that. 
Um, and then the other one, uh, I can't really uh, take it seriously either. That, no, that yeah, right. Guillermo You're, stole yeah. something from from Delicatessen. Uh, you know, it, it, it's right. the image is very a, a very fleeting one, and and a love. I like what he did with the with the tapping feet in 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 the scene. I, I you know, if it's in his brain somewhere from years ago, so what? You know, people borrow well, from each other yeah. all the time. Right. I mean, I, I guess it's an interesting kind of a challenge too, because it, it becomes this question of, you know, when, when, when can a narrative like that kind of spiral out of control? This particular case is just so ludicrous that it, it, it just obviously didn't gain traction, but it did kind of get out there because it's a dramatic thing to say. And Jean-Pierre Genet should know better than to say that kind of stuff in that context, it felt almost like a little bitter. I mean, Delicatessen is a great movie. I love but that movie. It's yeah. It's a very different movie, too. Yeah. yeah. It's like an absurd thing. Yeah, I don't it, think it will have, I really don't think it'll have any impact. No filmmaker was in more hot water this week than Quentin Tarantino for so many different reasons. First, there Not was a this good week <laughs> for him. Yeah. Poor, I mean, I don't want to say poor guy because I feel for him, poor, but he was an but, idiot. But I, well, they, well they, it's a pileup, right? You have this Maureen Dowd piece with Uma Thurman. She's talking about both uh, her uh, experience of sexual assault with Harvey Weinstein and this horrible thing that happened instead of Kill Bill where he shouldn't have let her drive this car and she had this terrible crash. And then within you know that 24-hour news cycle, we get this 15-year-old Howard Stern interview where he says this moronic thing defending uh, Polanski, saying that he didn't rape Samantha Geimer. She obviously considers this not to be the case. She he responded. A, she responded. She, and then he responded, responded with an apology, which and, of course so he had to make. I think he's not going to suffer too heavily from all this stuff. That's my, at least at, for the time being, unless we get a rash of new awful things that he said and done, because as, as you said in the piece uh, where we broke the story of his apology, uh, he, is, he is a great filmmaker that people want to support and is flawed and willing to acknowledge his flaws. Yes, and so he is. And he has handled great. each of these incidents appropriately. Now, he may have, apparently he didn't speak to Maureen Dowd when he had the chance, and he might have helped himself if he had done that. Um, and, and, and I wasn't altogether thrilled with the way Maureen Dowd wrote that story. Nobody, and nobody's talking about that enough in some ways because it's a wonky journalist thing and it doesn't catch fire the same way that the kind of more scandalous elements of the story are, which is this was not good reporting. In fact, it wasn't really reporting at all. She spoke to Uma Thurman and some other people like Ethan Hawke. But it was in the opinion pages in the New York Times and thus subject to a different kind of standard. And so the way in which this piece was reported was, was very disingenuous. And, and it's confusing, too, right? I mean, there were multiple reports that came out after it ran, some of which focused on the sexual assault with Harvey Weinstein and the fact that Tarantino made him apologize and all that kind of stuff. And then they kind of circled back and they said, hey, wait a minute. She buried the lead, or is it two different stories smashed into one, which is really what ended up happening and, and ended up confusing the news cycle. But there were also right. people involved in the crash besides Tarantino, and it all fell on him, and they were talked to, but they weren't in the story. And this whole thing I found very uh, murky. I, I agree with you. It, it, didn't, it wasn't as transparent 
um, as some of, of the stories have been in the New now, York Times. Now, if he was on an awards campaign right now, this would be really debilitating. He is no, instead of, that yeah. would be bad, but he isn't. He's in the middle of trying to make this Manson, or not Manson, 1969 movie, and then the word came out that Polanski's in the movie. Of course, Polanski's in the movie. Yes, how you know, it's part of that story. And you know, as much as he says he's not doing Manson, and we don't know what the focus of the story is, but I do feel this is where I do feel Tarantino should be left alone. Let him make his movie. I don't care if it's politically correct. He never is politically correct. When was Inglorious Bastards or Django Unchained politically correct? Let Parentino do his thing. Um, you know, he makes mistakes. He can be provocative and he can be stupid and he can say the wrong thing, but he's still well, a great filmmaker. Grows, I, I do hope he grows up a little bit in terms of how he talks about, uh, it's not about being politically correct per se, so much as it's being enlightened to the concerns of different people. I think that as much as I enjoyed Django Unchained, I think he did a bad job of talking about how uh, he would single out black critics for taking him to task. And, you know, there's a difference between sort of the the kind of radical nature of his, his of his expressivity, the way that he talks about his art and being sensitive to different kinds of people's boundaries. I think that there's something about the tone in which he sometimes discusses what we're calling politically incorrect storytelling that ticks people off in ways that, that could be avoided and aren't really necessary. They're not constructive. So that could be helpful. And maybe in this next movie, he will figure out a way around that. But more than likely, it's just going to be a lot of different conversations. It's going to be an ongoing thing. I just don't like the way so many people on, on social media are, are, you know, how can he put Polanski in the movie? I mean, give me a break. You know, he, they just don't know the story or something or they or they just have a trigger associated with his name or something. Yeah. Like yeah. Basically. So the last auteur we, we will be talking about this week, it's a, it's a week of, of packed male auteur action. Uh, the new Clint Eastwood movie is just being dropped right into theaters, uh, 1517 to Paris. And uh, we saw it. We had, I think, slightly different reactions to it. I have to tell you. I think it's a flawed movie. I can't talk. To, I've not talked to anybody who loved this movie, although I haven't been able to get uh, Clint Eastwood's right-hand man, Pierre Rissen, on the line. He always says something positive to say about that guy's work. But uh, my, my reaction to 1517, which if, if people don't know, it's about the, the, the three young Americans who stopped this shooter on a train from Paris, and, and they play themselves, is just that if this movie was premiered at... A, you know, in the documentary section at Sundance, people would be talking about how it's sort of uneven, but it's a really interesting approach to the reenactments of a real life event. And, uh, and, and it does give you a sense of what it was like to be on the train, that the, the suspense of the, the kind of finale is very effective. And it gets inside these guys' lives. Their lives were kind of mundane, and then they were disrupted by this dramatic event. Some of the dialogue is really clunky, and that bugged me. It feels a little amateurish. But it's not as bad as people are saying. It's really bad. You are totally so disagree. kind to this movie. Unbelievably no, I, I, kind. I, I, let me, let me cite another movie. Wait, Do you wait, want wait. me to argue before with you, you or not? Yes. Well, before you turn to it, let me just say, I also have not been a huge Clint Eastwood fan in the last few movies. It's been a while since I really found something to talk. I was sort of bored by American Sniper, for example. So that's sort of where I'm coming from. But, but, but please, tell me your... your the reasons why you hated this thing. The movie I want to bring up as an example of what this movie could have been if it had been done well is United 93. That's a case where you have a really, really riveting, taut, 
anxiety-provoking thriller situation. It's all real, all based on the, what actually happened and on real characters, played by unknown but fantastic actors and executed by one of the great directors of all time, Paul Greengrass. And I think that Clint Eastwood had a great idea for something that he thought he could pull off. He thought these guys were good looking and they were heroic and they were personable and he could make it work. And I don't know at what point he figured out that he couldn't because he obviously did. He knows. He knows that this thing is as flat as a pancake and that it, it's amateurish and that these improvisational things he did with these actors doesn't work. It is boring. You sit there as they go to order ice cream. It is like a, a travelogue of, of stupid, uninteresting people having uninteresting conversations in some of the biggest tourist um, cliches in the world and you're just waiting for the inevitable uh, to occur, the unfolding of the of the events. And even when that happens, it's anticlimactic. I mean, that's kind of what I took away from it anyway. I, I agree that some of the stuff is amateurish. I think that the Eastwood baggage kind of gets in the way of seeing what, what is actually interesting about the movie. I mean, when they catch the archival footage at the end with Francois Hollande giving these guys the Legion of Honor, it's seamless because they are themselves and they aren't actually necessarily worth your time it's and still you, a stunt though because you're at at least i'm going okay that's where he cut in <laughs> that's the original <laughs> video guess. footage it takes you but, out of the you movie know, it's a stunt you can be taken out of the movie because it's got a, this meta narrative quality that i found, found really interesting yeah. i agree it doesn't work i think it's a more interesting failure than most movies that don't work that are produced by big studios these days so at least there's you can that give hey. him credit for trying to do something different which is what yeah, i was talking did. to to chris nolan about you know the idea that dunkirk breaks all these different rules is is the if you want to, what i will be fascinated by actually is i believe I, I know eastwood well enough to know that i suspect that he thinks that this will work with audiences the way that American Sniper did, that real guys around the country, real folks, will actually glom onto this and find it really exciting. And if that's true, all power to him. But that doesn't make it a good movie. The potential is there. So next week, we have plenty to talk about. Black Panther is finally opening and seems to be on track to make a lot of money. And uh, I'm sure we'll find plenty of other things to dig into in the last two weeks of the award season. The end is in sight, as is your vacation end. So I hope that you're as excited as I am to get to that finish line. And I will talk to you soon. Talk to you next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.